Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, Clint Eastwood takes us behind the scenes of his new biographical drama, Richard Jewell. The film tells the true story of Jewell, an American security guard who saved thousands of lives from an exploding bomb at the 1996 Olympics. But his life starts to unravel when he becomes the FBI's prime suspect in the bombing attempt and is vilified by the press and public alike. In addition to Richard Jewell, Mr. Eastwood's many directorial credits include the feature films Play Misty For Me, The Bridges of Madison County, Flags of Our Fathers, Sully, and the 1517 to Paris. He was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film for 2003's Mystic River and 2014's American Sniper, and is a two-time Feature Film Award winner for 2004's Million Dollar Baby and 1992's Unforgiven. In 2006, Mr. Eastwood was the recipient of one of the Guild's highest honors, the DGA Lifetime Achievement Award in Feature Film. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Eastwood spoke with director Scott Cooper about filming Richard Jewell. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Thank you. Um, Good evening, I'm Scott. And I just wanna quickly personalize uh, why this is such a momentous occasion for me, uh, before I was a director, I was an actor with an unremarkable career, but I had one remarkable moment, and that was auditioning for Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil for Mr. Eastwood. And the part eventually went to Jude Law, and that was one of the final nails in my acting coffin, <laughs> which then I segued into writing and directing, and when I was just set to direct my first film, Crazy Heart, I found myself watching Mr. Eastwood's films over and over. And in particular, for that film, I watched his film about an aging and struggling musician, and that film was called Honky Tonk Man, and then I went on to direct Jeff Bridges in Crazy Heart. And then when I set out to direct my Western a couple of years ago called Hostiles, I found myself watching over and over the masterful Unforgiven. So if there was, yes, of course. So if ever there was a pinch me moment, I will tell you it's now. So please help me in welcoming our national treasure, Mr. Clint Eastwood. Thank you. Well, Mr. Eastwood, you have the good fortune to tell almost any story you want to tell. Why Richard Jewell? Well, I was just um, just fascinated by it. I think it was an ultimate, kind of an ultimate American screw-over. And uh, it was, it just, uh, I, I read... Uh, Mary Brenner's uh, story in the, what was it? It was in the magazine. Uh, in Vanity Fair, I think. In Vanity Fair. And that, um, I read that and then 
somebody gave me the script on it later on. Somebody sent it over, and I, I just uh, I loved it. And I thought I had it together four or five years ago, and it didn't um, it didn't materialize because of uh, it was at Fox and. We had it as a joint deal with Warners, and then it kind of fell apart. And then I just took one last shot at it this last year, and and then uh, and uh, you know Disney was buying Fox, and all kinds of things were going on, so uh, it fell into my lap. Well. I think we're all fascinated by this story of an instant national hero who becomes a suspect. And I know at one time, and he's, he's credited as a producer, but that Jonah Hill perhaps was going to play that part. But I was just telling Mr. Eastwood outside that when I saw the trailer, I could not believe the uncanny resemblance that the actor Paul Walker Hauser has as Richard Jewell. And so often when I would bring up, because I was fascinated by the story, when I would bring up Richard Jewell's name, people thought he was the bomber. Yeah. They didn't realize that he wasn't. And, and, and even this, this is 20 years later. And, yeah. and you find that so often people's memory just really isn't clear about who he was in the story. And I think you tell it in such a clear fashion that his mother must be very, very gracious, grateful for, for the film. Yeah, because it tells the story so cleanly, and it really shows what an extraordinary, an ordinary man can do in extraordinary circumstances. And right. then, and then when you have a guy like Paul, then it must really help tell a story because he just he he. When I, after seeing the movie two nights ago, I went back to watch interviews with Richard Jewell, and his performance is, in my estimation, one of the best I've seen in years. Yeah, no, it's really. Um... He's really clever, and uh, somebody had pointed out to me that there was a fellow in the played in the ending, uh, very ending of I Tanya Harding, who looks kind of like Richard Jewell, and so I I looked at that, and uh, sure enough, he did look like Richard Jewell enough to be his twin brother, and then when I met him, I thought, well, that probably meeting him will be a different deal, and you're just not quite sure, but then when I met him, he was Richard Jewell. How was his relationship with Bobby Jewell, played by Kathy terrific, Bates? Terrific, terrific. We had, uh, Bobby came out to uh, uh, Warner's, and we uh, took, showed her, introduced her to uh, uh, our young leading man, and, he, and she just was stunned. I mean, she was really stunned at, at the resemblance and everything. And I wonder if some of his mannerisms if, if that was a coincidence that they really match Richard Jewell's or if, or if that well, I, was such a specific portrayal? Yeah, well, maybe a little of each. I, I, think, I, think he, uh, I think he affected a lot of it, but he had it, a lot of it naturally, so much naturally that I think it just was easy for him. Even and, his and speech he, pattern. He, he, I know that's easy to say because usually actors make something look easy. Usually they're pretty good. But, uh, but he is good. He is really good. Well, the film posits some really kind of urgent present-day observations, the role of the FBI and the media, specifically their influence over our lives. Would you say that, that it's even more timely now than when you would have made it five years ago? Because it seems to me that it is. Yes, it is. With both the media and the FBI. Yeah. No, I, 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 I agree with you completely. I think it's much 
more pertinent to today than it would have been four years ago. You know, I find that, that many people complain that because of fierce news competition, the 24-hour cycle, all of the different outlets, yeah. that the press sometimes can rush to judgment, even at right. the expense of yeah. the victims. I mean, did this motivate you in any way in yeah. telling the story? Yeah, I just think uh, that the rush to judgment is one of the big faults we have now in, in media. And, uh, and uh, I think we, it's most important for all of us to always remember that the innocent until proven guilty. And that's something that, that some has overlooked in a lot of cases nowadays, and especially in, in Richard Jewell case. Right, if you could imagine, had Twitter been a thing when he was when he was convicted, because now you're you're essentially convicted at times in the court of Twitter, and you're guilty before you're proven innocent. Yeah, which is precisely what happened yeah, to him. It, it's I I just think telling the story was important uh, as a as a statement, but it's also kind of if you see a little bit of it kind of creeping in nowadays, and you start wondering. If, uh, if history is going to repeat itself in other ways. Mm. And surely it will. Um, as always, the supporting cast in your films, all of your films, is first rate. I mean, here you have Sam Rockwell, and you have John Hamm, and you have Kathy Bates, uh, Olivia Wilde. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your, having been on the other side of it, can you talk a little bit about your casting process? Because you generally like to cast off of tape. Is that still the, the case? It's kind of intuition or gut? The, the, the last part you mentioned. When you cast, do you cast off tape? Do you have people generally? Yes. Yeah, I, I do. Uh, because having uh, coming from the acting side, you know, if I had to cast it by meeting everybody, I'd be hiring everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because everybody would be coming in and say, gee, I haven't had an act part in about uh, th three and a half years. And I'd be, okay, you're on. <laughs> and so, uh, so this way, if I don't, I, I love the meeting the people, but I love to meet them after I'm, when I'm 99% there or 100% there on, on their... Well, I couldn't agree more because I, I often, I, I rarely audition people um, because I, having done it so many times and you're sitting in a very cold room and you're generally reading with someone who isn't an actor and, and you're not sure if, if you want to make very specific choices or what you think Clint Eastwood wants, and, which is probably why I'm still not an actor... But it's really, it's a difficult process. And I think just by sitting with someone and really getting a sense of who they are, if they're really right for the part, I find is very helpful for me. Absolutely. But you want to have, be 80% available for the part if, if, it, if all of this interview goes well. In terms of your directing style, which is always so clear and so economical, you almost always have the camera in the right place, and you're telling the story in a way that, that is, is unadorned but extremely emotionally powerful. How do you always know where to put the camera? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I is just, that for making 38 just films? Just make a lot of good guesses, I hope. You know, it's a... Uh, you just go where it seems to take you. Um, you. To me, once you get the story in your in your blood, then you can just. It seems like you can 
you can put it together. Uh, I don't know. I have no answer for that, really. Well, when you come to a set, do you, do you just say to your actors, well, let's, let's see you perhaps move from here to here, pick up this prop, come here? Or do you let them run it a couple of times and then you make alterations? Or do you have a very clear idea of... I want Sam Rock, Rock, Rockwell to come in this door under this exit sign. I want him to come over, pick up this water pitcher, fill it, and sit down. I, I, I tend to want to uh, come, and uh, I, I tend to have an idea uh, in my mind, and then I'll say, how, about, uh, how would you feel about coming in here and doing this and that? And, uh, and I, 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 get the, uh, I con the actors into thinking that they're part of the act, and they are, really. <laughs> No, because they, they are, uh, I, I want everybody to feel comfortable. I said, how oh, we, we walk in here like this, and you come around, and then he'll come down here, and she'll come over here. And uh, uh, so try it. You know, try it on and see how you like it. And then we get it, everybody, and pretty soon everybody is with you. Or if they're not with you, they just don't tell you that anyway. <laughs> anyway. But uh, basically... Uh, uh, you know, I want I want everybody to be part of the uh, the process. And so uh, all the crew members, everybody, the crew guys can all they re, they can kind of read my mind. But uh, the actors, uh, we have to just kind of slip it to them gently. Well, you know what's interesting is having directed only one western, but you of course acted in numerous and directed a few. I find that well, first of all, in any scene, regardless of the genre it's critical that the actors are comfortable. Yeah. And I also find that if you call action, that even the horses get tense. Yeah. You can see their ears perk up. Yeah, they do. I mean, do you, did you find that? Yeah. I sometimes absolutely. never call action. Yeah. I just will say to you, Mr. Eastwood, yeah. whenever you're ready. Yeah. No, I never use action because it's overused, and a lot of people think of it as some sort of a... a you know, a, a slamming a, a sledgehammer down. And I, I remember when I first started watching movie sets when I was in back in the 50s and I was a young actor going to classes and what have you, I'd go on sets and watch people and they'd always ring bells before they could ring a huge bell. Okay, that means quiet for everybody. And then then assistant director used to come out there and yell at the top of his lungs, Quiet, everybody, silence, everybody, you know, and then you go, okay, it's, it's amazing that an actor could get their, anything out of their mouth at that time. They're so <laughs> petrified. So, uh, and then I uh, years uh, did a series on television for years, writing almost every day, and we'd line up horses, and you'd, you know, ride in, and they'd say, okay, ride right in here now to the mic and camera right here, and you, and you pull up there, and then you start uh, talking. And well, the time they ride in and, and you've, read, you've yelled action at them, the horses are all going like this and they're jumping <laughs> back and forth. And half of the actors, some of them could ride well. Even the ones that couldn't, they're all over the place, you know. So uh, I finally suggested one time to the director, I was younger and more naive, I said, how about just not saying action? How about just saying, just, how about just waving your hand? We'll, we all see you. Just wave your hand when you want us to come in. And it worked. So we tried it, and it worked good. We come in, and then it lasted about two takes, and then they started screaming again. <laughs> so it didn't really stick with us too long. But then as, as uh, uh, later as I got more experienced, 
I just did every scene like that, every shot, whether it was horses or humans. I found it was much more relaxing and it was much more friendly, actor friendly, to just kind of say, come on. I do the exact same thing. Or different, or hello there, or go, go, <laughs> stop. Just simple things that we all know, and, and you're, it's not a shock to the system. When you decided to direct Play Misty for me, which I think is a fantastic film, uh, you were obviously an actor still at the, at the height of his game. What motivated you to direct, just so that you knew exactly what you wanted? Were there directors that you just didn't get along with? You felt like, I should try this, I've done it long enough as an actor? Well, it was a little uh, story about a guy who was a sort of a, a, a big wheel in a small community. And I lived in a small community. I said, this is something I could make at home mm. in the Monterey Peninsula. And uh, so uh, I just kind of went and planned it that way. Then I went to Lou Wasman, who was the head of uh, Universal and uh, many other places. And, he, um, and I said, I'd like to do this project that you've got some for it. Was, you have it. Here and you have you put it in in limbo. I said, "How about uh, me acting in it?" And he says, "Oh, that sounds good, Eastwood. That's all right." And then he says, uh, "Then I said, and uh, you know, I'd love to direct it." And he went, "All right, that's okay." And I'm going, "What am I doing? <laughs> I better shut up now because I, everything's going well." So I, I walk out the door. My agent walks out with me. And, and all of a sudden, we get halfway down the hall, and Wasserman comes out the door and says, uh, Lenny, come back here with you for a minute. And they go back, and they're having a big conference, and then Lenny walks back out. And uh, I said, hey, that went pretty well. And he says, oh, yeah, it's, it's, they want, he wants you to do it, and you direct it, but he doesn't want to pay you. <laughs> of course. And I said, okay. I said, he shouldn't have to pay me. I should have to pay him, or I, I should have to pay him for the opportunity. I often feel the same and way. He, uh, and he said, no, no, well, there's a the minimum, you know, and all. I said, yeah, no, I, of course, he's thinking of his 10%. Then um, I'm, uh, I'm thinking of just getting the opportunity. So finally it all worked out, and they gave me minimum, and uh, I made it. And, did you and, and made it beautifully. Did you find directing, self-directing difficult? No, I kind of, I kind of liked it. I'd worked with some really good directors uh, uh, that I kind of, uh, we worked kind of. They would always take suggestions or look, listen to other people's suggestions, and I was there, knocking out suggestions a lot of times. And uh, sometimes it, it worked, and sometimes they'd kind of look at you like, and roll their eyes like, I wish this kid had shut up. <laughs> but um, you know, eventually it worked out fine. Do you ever get stuck in a scene when an actor doesn't convey what you really want him to or her to convey? Because you're you are well known for only doing a couple of takes at a time, and do you ever get stuck with someone who's not getting across what you want to get across? Well, well I'm known for that, but it's not necessarily. Uh, the, it's it, uh, one. It's one take if it works on one take. Sure. It takes two, or it takes three, or it takes four. Whatever, but then when I get the one, I, I've, I've kind of learned to rely on my own sensibilities as, 
at least as in, in my opinion, <laughs> to say, okay, take three is just fine. Or, but I'm always trying for number one. Mm. I figure if an actor knows that you're, you're trying on the first take, they won't slide. Because sometimes an actor said, well, I might as well coast along because I, I know this guy prints about six or eight ta- ten takes before anything happens. Well, there are some directors, quite well-known, who will force an actor to do 60, 80, 100 takes. And Absolutely. Insanity. I would, uh, I thought you were going to say six or ten. But oh, no, no. One hundred takes? Stanley Kubrick was well known for doing it. If this. they don't have it by then, you're, you're, something's wrong. You may, you've miscast it. Or <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I, I, I barely do more than three or four takes. Either I've miscast the thing or I've... Uh, or I'm not conveying what yeah, should be conveyed to the actor. Or, yeah, and I, I just can't uh, speak up well enough uh, I'm, so anyway, I, I think I love actors, and, and I think I I know them when I've cast them. Probably I think I know what they're gonna how they're gonna be alike. Well, it's very clear that you. Well, interestingly, Orson Welles and I think Francis Ford Coppola both said that they think the best directors of, of performance are actors. That you can learn the technical skills necessary to direct a film as Francis said, in a weekend. Well, it's, it's clearly much more than that. But they felt that actors really were able to communicate to other actors in a way that, that directors who haven't had that experience can't. And, and I think in your case, it's, it's very clear because your performances are always emotionally truthful. They're touching. And, and I, I can't even think of any in which you really see the gears working with an actor. So it's clear that you make them very com- comfortable, which is why I asked if you ever have any difficulty yeah. in conveying what you want to convey. Well, I think it's the director's uh, responsibility to make the actor, uh, he or she, extremely comfortable coming. Uh, you know, I think that's, that's the whole trick. And if they're tense or something for some reason, you've got to know how to detensify them. And I don't know, that's probably different with every person. So you're kind of an amateur psychiatrist. But um, basically, you know, kind of when you're casting a person, and you've they've either you've either looked at some of the other things they've done, or or they if they make a test for you, um, that you know you've you've got you can kind of get the avenue for you. But you have you're half a you're half psychiatrist in some way. If you, yeah, if part therapist for sure. Somebody's having a. a attention problem you uh, you have to know how to rid that and if you don't it's just going to be the hard hard work you didn't score this film the wonderful Arturo Sandoval scored this why did you not score it because I find your I mean it's a stunning score but I find your composition so beautiful and so connected to uh, your narrative and performances that I marvel that not only do you sometimes star on the films, but you direct them and you score them. It's remarkable. Why didn't you? Well, I, score I love this? You know, music score. Oh yeah, I love it. It's fantastic. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I love music, and I've been uh, I've uh, studied music uh, in my younger days, and. Um, uh, played a little bit of music around town, and I, I just I just love scores, and I 
I, I just, I'm always sitting down and writing down something. And finally, uh, I just started using them, and then and, uh, they seem to work out okay. And a lot of times, it, 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 you, you want a certain emphasis uh, that sometimes a, a, a musician might uh, try to uh, overpower the story. Mm. Or I just, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a high and a low and a great spot in the middle, and you just have to find out where that is. Well, because you're very judicious with where you place music. So often, uh, a film score will, will convey an emotion that isn't being conveyed by the narrative. Performances aren't working, so score is often used to help prop that up. But in your films, you don't have a lot of music, and you have it generally in all the right places. And it just must be from having directed 38 films. Because it's remarkable how every time you hear the piano come in or whatever instrument is leading that particular piece of music, it always seems to be in the right place. Well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing. Uh, it seems uh, it's a good thing that it comes out that way. At the time, of course, I don't know how it's going to affect other people. I just know how it affects, how it affects me. You. And so I have to kind of judge. I have to kind of assume that that the person watching it will go along with me. And if they don't go along with me, then they're, they're going to maybe say, next film, please. To give you guys a sense of how economical Mr. Eastwood is, correct me if I'm wrong, but you started shooting this film over the summer, or this last summer, right? July. And here we are in December, and he's shot it, yeah. and he's edited it, and yeah, Warner Brothers has released it. We shot June and July, yeah. And I find, or my wife will tell me that I take far too long to direct in between films, that I'm, that I'm too precious with the, trying to find the right story and, and, and working with the right actors. But you have such an ability to not only cast really well, but work extremely quickly. Is that because you work with the same crew, or is it because you're so clear in what the narrative is that you, you see it all before you even step foot on the set? Yeah, I don't, I don't know uh, uh, whether it is. I, I try to use a lot of people sometimes, if they're available, that I've used before or I know. If not, I use other people equally uh, talented that, I've, that I try to find. It used to kind of cast the crew much like you do the actors. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, it, 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 a lot of times people come on and they're expecting a certain thing, but by the time a couple days go by, everybody kind of knows that we're going to just work quietly and we're going to pay attention to the work, but we're not going to uh, be too fancy out there. We're not going to... Um, we're not going to make a lot of showbiz out of it. It's going to be uh, 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 subtle, hopefully, unless uh, if the scene demands a, a great dynamo or something like that, then the great dynamics, then you'll have to, uh, and we'll just go for it. And then with it. But if it's a quiet scene, it's going to be quiet, and if it's, everything is going to be what it is, closest to reality as we can get it. Are there any scripts that when you walk into your, into Mal Paso's offices on the Warner's lot that you, you walk by every day and you think, one day I'm going to get to that particular script, but that you haven't? I mean, it took this one five years to get made, and you told me earlier that it took Unforgiven much longer than that, but is there one script 
that you just cannot wait to make or has just not been the right time? It's not been what? That, hasn't, that isn't the right time to make the film? So often... Yeah. I, well, that, that was a good example, Unforgiven, because I, I had it and uh, somebody else had tried to make it there and the, they, the budget problems or something going on. And so they, they fell out with the studio. And so uh, I read the script. I loved it. And Terry Semmel, who was the head of the studio at that time, said, well, go ahead, you, you keep it and you make it whenever you feel like it. And so I said, well, not right away, because I think I sh should be a little older. So I put it in a drawer, and 10 years later, I took it out and said, okay, we're doing this starting tomorrow. <laughs> and everybody said, that script? That script's been around for a while. Yeah, it's been in my drawer. <laughs> so... Are there other scripts like Unforgiven that you're ready to direct now? Yeah. That you Are there? No, no, there no? isn't. That, it's, that was a very rare script. And it's the last Western I made, and, and it was, uh, everybody said, so you're not going to do Westerns anymore? I said, well, nobody's really writing good ones right now. And I, that I hadn't found any, at least I hadn't. Maybe other people have. But um, I felt that, uh, that maybe someday one will come along, but I haven't found it yet. And so in the meantime, I'll do Richard Yule and some other things that I've... In the Mule, which I loved, and on and on. Uh, yeah. Are there any actors that you haven't worked with that you have always wanted to, but just it hasn't aligned with the part? Yeah, but they're all deceased. <laughs> <laughs> and, and can you name one? Well, I was thinking when, when I was a, a young guy uh, trying to start out, I, I always thought... I'd love to be in a, in a film with uh, Gary Cooper or uh, Henry Fonda or some of the actors of that generation. But I was right just a little too late you know, for that generation and a little too early for the next. So it, I, it, never, uh, it never came about. I, I met Gary Cooper one time and I thought, geez, it wouldn't be great to be in a Gary Cooper movie, but it never happened. I, get, uh, I, I got to the doorstep a few times, but that was as far as I got, and they sent me down the street. <laughs> <laughs> have, have you ever been turned down by an actor? I can't imagine that happening, but sent an actor a script, and, and, and he or she just didn't find that they were right for the part or didn't connect to it. Yeah, it probably has happened. I, I, don't, I can't recall an incident right now, but it probably has. Somebody either said they didn't uh, understand it or... They were busy doing something else or what, what have you. But most of the time you approach a person, if, yeah, yeah, I've been turned down. <laughs> I, I'm not going to. Well, if I've learned anything, they're, they're telling me we have about a minute left. If I've learned anything about your films, it's not that film is an intellectual art form, but an emotional I think form. it is. I think a lot of actors might pretend it's an intellectual art form. But I think it really is an emotional art form, and the, the least the way, the, the, the least they can be intellectualizing, uh, sometimes they'll find out if they use the internal organs that you'll be uh, much, much better off. And um, I, I believe that. It's, it's, an, it's a, an art form that uh, should be in your soul and your, in, in, not in your... Uh, you can't bifurcate it or cut it up into pieces. It doesn't work. If you over-intellectualize on it, you're going to talk your way out of it eventually. 
And last question, if, if we're driving down the road in your truck or your car and you're driving, what are we listening to? What music? What music? What music? Uh, let's see. Well, I've done that. I've been down the road with the bridges of Madison County or with the, the uh, it could be anything. It could be anything, probably would be jazz or blues, but it might be something else. Might be some great singer. It could be anything. It could be uh, not opera because that's a little too forced. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for giving us a wonderful film about an ordinary man who, when called upon to step up to the occasion, he did just that. Richard Jewell. Ladies and gentlemen, Clint Eastwood. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more great Q&As with directors Mati Diop and Pedro Almodovar. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 